Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. I do want to thank uh, Jeremy and David for bringing the message the last couple of weeks. Gave me some time to uh, do other things, a couple of IT projects around the office, and some personal study. So I appreciate the time uh, to do that. Romans chapter 3, we're picking up where we left off three weeks ago as Paul continues to prove to us that he never got invited over to anyone's house for dinner or to a party. Uh, These passages we've been reading are not, you know, designed to make you feel better about yourself. They're actually designed for just the opposite, to give you a realistic view of human nature as God sees it. Let's read the passages and then we'll get into it a little little more deeply. Romans chapter 3 will begin with verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we'll end right there. Today, we're going to continue, as I said, to look at the condition of the human race. And we focus again today on the idea of goodness the goodness in men, because you see, from our perspective, there are good deeds. People do good things, but if we define goodness the way that God does, then the verdict comes out a little differently, because from a biblical standpoint, there are two aspects to a good deed. When God weighs our actions, he weighs, first of all, whether they correspond outwardly to his law, to his will. God requires honesty, and we're to be honest. So we're honest when we don't cheat on our income taxes. By the way, your contribution records are available out in the foyer for those of you who want to be honest about your contributions. And we try not to steal or lie or things that are dishonest because God requires honesty of us. So it's good that you don't steal, and it's good that you don't cheat on your taxes. So far, so good, right? We have that external conformity to the law of God. However, when God evaluates our behavior, it's not only the outward action that he judges, but the inward action or the inward motivation, you could say. Therefore, for people to do good in God's sight... They not only have to do something that conforms to his law, but they also have to be motivated in that action by a heart that desires to please God, to love God with all their heart and all their mind, the great commandment, right? If that is the standard, then we're in trouble, aren't we? Because we have never in our lives loved God with our whole heart. I'm somebody who has never loved God with his whole heart. Yes, parts of it, and I hope 
most of it, and I strive for all of it. But can we be honest with ourselves for just a moment about this? I've loved him with part of my mind, and hopefully most of it, and again, striving for all of it, but failing. So if loving God supremely is the great commandment, to fail in this is the great transgression. Nobody has loved God with his whole heart and mind, even for a few seconds. So if that is the standard by which God is going to judge our deeds, our good deeds, then we see why Paul would say that no one is good. It begins to make sense to us when we view things through God's lens. It's not just Paul that says this. You remember when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19. In verse 16, the first thing the young man asks him is, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And in the very next verse, verse 17, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. He's talking about God. And when you read this story, there's more to it. You can read it in Matthew. The saddest part about this story is that Jesus met a young man who actually thought he was good. Obviously, this rich young ruler had not been present when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and emphasized the depth of the importance of the Ten Commandments and how they go beyond just outward behavior to matters of the heart. This young man in Matthew 19 had a superficial understanding of goodness and of the law of God, probably. And I fear that today, many, even in our churches, have an equally superficial or, or say, shallow understanding of goodness and of the true condition of man. Now, the last time we were in Romans together, Paul just said this. He said, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And you know, that wasn't even Paul's first description of mankind in the book of Romans. Back in chapter 1... He gives a very grim description of the human race, and it goes like this, starting in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. You know, after a list such as this one that really details the condition of humanity, you might think that adding anything else to this catalog would be unnecessary. Paul, you've covered this. But as Paul comes to the end of this first main section in Romans, where he's really stressing the need of people for the grace of the gospel, he decides... 
that he needs to do it over again. And so here in chapter 3, verses 13 and 18, he writes the description of mankind that we just read. The difference between this passage today and that back in Romans chapter 1 is that each of these sentences in today's text, each of them are quotes from the Old Testament. Whereas the earlier passage in chapter 1 seems to just be the apostle's own descriptive terminology, his own words. So in other words, you could say Romans 1 is a description of mankind as Paul saw it, although he is an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Where here in Romans 3, we could say this is the condition of mankind as God sees it, as God wrote about it back in the Old Testament. So, let's begin. Verses 13 and 14 are made up of three quotations from the Old Testament. Psalms chapter 5, verse 9, Psalm chapter 140, verse 3, and Psalm 10, 7. However, there are other passages that are very similar to these. This is the three that make it up for the most part. And what is striking about these verses is that they all refer to organs of speech. We have the throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. And Paul is describing how these organs of speech are used to harm others. Earlier in Romans, as we talked about the depravity of the human race, it seemed to focus on how we harm ourselves because of this. Now we move into this idea that we actually harm others. So let me give you a little context about our speech. The Bible teaches that a person's character will inevitably manifest itself in their conversation. Jesus taught this, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Later in chapter 15, he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's not just New Testament. The Old Testament speaks of it as well. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. And then a couple of verses from chapter 15 of Proverbs. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So this teaching by Paul about our speech is really not anything new, is it? Paul, by quoting from the Old Testament, is just illustrating here how our character reveals itself in our speech, in our conversation. And what he's doing here is adding even more charges to the divine indictment of mankind as we stand before God the judge. So we're going to list those charges for you one at a time this morning here in just a bit. But I want to ask you, when you read those verses, what do you first think of? What kind of stands out to you? The first time I read it through, it was 
the whole idea of curses and bitterness. And I thought, that's in verse 14, and I thought about what you would, harsh speech, which is meant to wound another person. All of you have heard this at some point in your life, and many of you may have been the providers of this type of speech to others. Maybe you remember when you were a child and someone said something mean like this to you, and you remember what your mom told you. She would say something like, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Unfortunately, mom is a liar, and a lying liar who lies, because that is not true, is it? It's something we say, it's kind, it kind of bolsters our egos when we are told something mean. Makes us feel like, I'm, I'm bigger than this. It's not going to bother me. But it's not true that words do not hurt us. Words do hurt, and they hurt deeply. And the, the relationship is quite unique in that the closer the person is to you, the more potential the words have to hurt you deeply. We don't care what some stranger says about us. They don't even know us. But when it's a friend or a family member or something like that, it cuts deeply. In fact, it can also hurt permanently. Maybe you can remember incidences from your childhood when you were hurt physically. Maybe you broke a bone or sprained your ankle or something. I have stories like that that I can remember. I played sports as a child, which is hard to even imagine right now, but I did. And so there were lots of injuries, sprains and strains, and I broke my leg once. I remember all of those instances, but I don't remember the pain. I'm trying to reimagine in my mind what the pain was like with those injuries, and there's only one that I can really even faintly remember. But in those instances, I can remember several where people have said things to me that hurt. I remember them to this day, and it still hurts to this day. Sticks and stones do hurt our bones temporarily, but words have the ability to wound in a way that lingers. And if we're not careful, it lingers forever. So, as I mentioned in these verses, Paul uses human anatomy, the organs of speech, to illustrate how our character manifests itself in our speech. One writer paraphrased these verses like this. His tongue is tipped with fraud. His lips are tainted with venom. His mouth is full of gall or bitterness. His tongue a sword to run men through, and his throat a sepulcher in which to bury them. So when you consider not just that man's paraphrase, but the actual verses themselves, I think we can agree that Paul's teaching here goes a little deeper than just sticks and stones. Indeed, I think it's clear that it does because the words describe here in this passage the outcome of all of this, not just a psychological injury, not just hurting your feelings, but it ends in death. So let's look at these charges that Paul is bringing as part of the indictment against mankind in these verses. The first charge he brings is in verse 13, and it says their throat is an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. And that's an interesting language. The way I can best understand it is 
the throat is to the heart, just as an open grave is to a corpse. The throat is to the heart, just as an open grave is to the corpse in these evil people. I mean, you understand that where embalming is not available, when someone dies, what they do is place them in the ground and cover them up. Not only out of respect for the person, but to prevent passers-by from seeing the decay or even smelling it. But the man without Christ keeps his throat wide open, always talking, and in so doing continually testifies to his spiritual death by the foolishness of his words. Their throat is an open grave. The next charge that Paul brings is that they use their tongues to deceive. This again is in verse 13. Now the meaning of the Greek word there, to deceive, means to lure. And the obvious way we can understand this is fishing. I used to fish a lot. I used, of course, I like the most fly fishing, gentlemen's sport of fly fishing, not sitting on a cooler pressing stink bait onto a treble hook and throwing it into a muddy pond. But when we think of lure, that's what we think of. Putting some bait over a hook so the fish thinks that it's a meal for him and it turns out that the fish becomes a meal for the fisherman. He cannot see the hook until it's too late. And that is what Paul is describing here when he says they use their tongues to deceive, to lure and the way the word is used in the text means that it is a continual, repetitive deceit, not just occasional. You see, for the natural man apart from Christ, lying and other forms of deceit are habitual and normal part of life. It's what they do. And it can be subtle. It doesn't have to be what you think of when you think of outright lying. It can be things that are subtle like flattery. Flattery is used to deceive. It's used to make you think the person thinks more highly of you than perhaps they actually do. Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, which is one of the psalms that Paul partially quotes here or refers to here, says that they flatter with their tongue. I mean, there are actually many verses, as you might imagine, that deal with man's propensity to lie and to deceive here are a couple, Isaiah chapter 59, beginning in verse 1, it really gets to the truth of deception in the, at the end, but it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Jeremiah speaks to this as he describes the evil people of his day. Chapter 9, verse 3, They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. 
They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Isn't that a sad statement about these people? Don't trust your neighbor. Don't trust anyone. They all lie. Next, Paul moves on to his next charge, which is, in verse 13, the venom of asps is under their lips. And this is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 140, verse 3. The adder, or the asp, is one of the deadliest reptiles in the world. Not only is its bite fatal, but it's exceedingly painful. I read this description. The fangs of such a deadly snake ordinarily lie folded back in the upper jaw, but when the snake throws his head to strike, these hollow fangs drop down, and when the snake bites, the, large, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison hidden under the lips ejecting venom into the victim. That sounds a lot like the rattlesnakes that we encounter around here, doesn't it? But you see, the Bible describes our tongues as sacks of venom. We are like those pit vipers. The words we use destroy and maim and poison. This is the charge that Paul makes against mankind. We move on to the next charge in the indictment, and it is in verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Curses, you, you probably know what that means. It carries the idea of an, in, an intense malediction, which is just a, a synonym for curse. Desiring the worst for a person and making that desire public through open criticism and defamation. Bitterness, on the other hand, doesn't, obviously doesn't refer to taste, something tasting bitter, but rather to describe openly expressed hostility against an enemy that's been brewing for a while. David describes this kind of speech, these curses and bitterness, in Psalm 64. Starting in verse 3, he talks about these people who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. I mean, history is littered with people who do this. Famous people. We don't even have to get to people like you and me. People use their tongues as vicious weapons. Their attacks aren't only, it seems from this passage, not only against those that they know well enough to hate, but it also seems to be against people at times, even strangers, simply for the perverse pleasure of venting their anger and hatred. He talks about shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. These are the charges Paul brings against us based on our speech, but we're not to think that this grim description of mankind is limited just to words or even still to charming words like flattery. It goes much deeper than that. In verse 14, what he calls this deceitful and poisonous speech boils over into the harsh curses and bitterness on those who refuse to be deceived. And then we get to verses 15 through 17, and we move from words to violent actions. Now, these last few verses are actually directly quoted from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8, and it describes three acts of violent men. And it begins with 
the end result of these acts. So if we want to look at them in the order in which they develop, we're going to start at the end and go backwards. So first we'll go to verse 17, which says, The way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. So we're talking about people here who are in themselves apart from God, unregenerate, unsaved people. And so you can look at it a couple of ways. First, they have no personal peace. They know no peace. Isaiah 57, 20 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. That's an interesting description of someone with no peace. But I don't think we can limit this passage to think that all it's saying is that these people have no inner peace. It also describes the effects that these people have upon others. Because see, having no peace themselves, they disrupt the peace of those around them. I mean, there are three ways that men apart from God lack peace. This, this is just kind of an add-in. First, they're not at peace with God. They're at war with God. Scripture calls us enemies of God before we come to Christ. But that's not all. Second, they're not at peace with one another. Their relationships are characterized by strife and stress, if not hatred and bitterness, restlessness. And third, they are not at peace with themselves. And this is manifestly evident when you consider the industry that we have in today's culture of trying to help people be at peace with themselves. And the only way that we or they can find this peace is by coming to the cross of Christ. That's where God himself has bridged the gap to man and allowed us to have peace with God. There, sinners can find peace within themselves as well. And because of that, we are drawn together into fellowship with other believers who have likewise found peace and so therefore we are able to live in peace with one another. And that's the only way. But Paul here describes them as having no peace. The second act of violent men in verse 16 is in their paths are ruin and misery. And again, this is something they experience themselves, but it's also something that they bring on others. So it has an active, not just a passive sense. It's not just because of the choices they made, they are miserable or ruined. It's that they inflict this on other people. The word for ruin here is a compound word that denotes breaking in pieces, completely shattering and causing total devastation, which you might think of when you hear the word ruin. As bad as it gets. And our culture has become that way and it's become common to understand it as that way. To me, it is heartbreaking that we have terms in our culture like child abuse or wife abuse. Those terms should never go together. But that is the amount of misery and ruin that has been inflicted upon our culture and our society and our friends and our neighbors and maybe even on some of us. The ruin of man is widespread, and it's evident, and it's terrible. 
You see, without a changed nature, which only God can do, human beings naturally labor to destroy and ruin one another. And Paul has already been laboring that point throughout Romans. Misery, on the other hand, is a result of this ruin. Man's ruin, or the New American Standard Bible says destruction, inevitably leaves a trail of pain and despair behind misery. Finally, working backwards, we come to the last of these actions, and that is in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. I just, I almost feel like I don't need to elaborate on this. It's self-evident. And it doesn't depend upon your level of sophistication. As a culture, we have everything from the cannibalism of the most primitive of tribes to the mass, mass extinction Mass extermination, mass destruction of societies by civilized, so-called civilized countries. Innocent civilians. We don't even, do we even need to move into the whole idea of abortion and what we've done to the unborn? Talking about being swift to shed blood. It's easy to observe the destruction and the destructive disposition of mankind. Robert Haldane, who's a commentator and theologian, writes this. The most savage animals, think of what you consider to be the most savage animal. The most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his cupidity, which means greed. I mean, just look at the crime rates or the murder rates in some of our cities. There's, there was a researcher at MIT named Arnold Barnett, and he stated that a child born today in any of the 50 largest cities in the United States has a 1 in 50 chance of being murdered. Dr. Barnett also estimated that a baby born during the 1980s is more likely to be murdered than an American soldier in World War II was of being killed in combat. Whether in peace or in war, man kills man. Their end is death. And not just physical death, though that would be bad enough, but we also need to discuss spiritual death. If your life ends apart from you knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, then spiritual death is real for you. Death means separation. Physical death, we define as the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. And spiritual death is the separation of this soul and spirit from God forever. We move to the last phrase and it is an apt conclusion. It's taken from Psalm 36, verse 1. And it tells why these things are happening. And what Paul says is simply, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, 1, the full text says this, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So because man's ears are attuned to the lies of sin rather than to the truth of righteousness, 
they have an inadequate concern, therefore have no fear of God. Now, I'm sure that the word fear in this sentence doesn't mean exactly what we mean when we use the word. When we say fear, we usually mean things like fright or terror. But when the word in the Bible is used of God, it refers rather to a right and a reverential frame of mind before him. It has to do with worshiping him and obeying him and fleeing from evil, fearing the Lord. That's why we read in Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what this means, when we approach God rightly, the other things in our life seem to fall into place much more easily. When Romans chapter 3 verse 18 declares that the human race is not doing this, it is saying what Paul has been stating all along. Because men and women will not know God, but rather they suppress the truth about God, their minds are darkened and they become fools. You remember those passages. They claim to be wise, but in Romans 1 verse 23, it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There is no fear of God before their eyes. One commentator says to be destitute of the fear of God is to be godless. And no indictment could be more inclusive and decisive than the charge here made. People have no sense of awe, no desire to honor God or to glorify him as God. I do find it interesting that Paul refers to our eyes here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the sixth specific reference to our body that Paul has used in these passages. He's referred to our throats and our tongues and our lips and our mouths and our feet. And now he mentions our eyes. And since our eyes are the organs of vision, to have God before our eyes means that we have him constantly in our thoughts. He is the central position in everything that concerns us. I've heard it said that our gaze must be on God. Our glance can be at our circumstances, but our gaze remains on God. It means that we are ever looking toward him. To have the fear of God before our eyes is to do just that. It is the way of all blessing and growth and knowledge. Now I began by saying when we got to this section that fear doesn't mean fright or terror. But I think I must say that if you decide that you are not going to come to God the way he presents himself to us in Jesus Christ which is as Savior, then it's not inappropriate to fear him because the next time he comes, he will come as judge. God's wrath hangs over us. His terrible judgment awaits us. That's something we should fear, not with reverential awe, but with fright and terror. You see, the irony of the state of human beings when we're still in our sin is that we don't fear this one holy, unchanging, judging God. Instead, instead we fear lesser things. 
And it's been this way throughout history. The pagans of Paul's day feared this vast pantheon of gods, Greek gods, Babylonian gods, Roman gods, and even others. Those pagans that we talked about earlier in the jungles, they fear rivers and rocks and trees or maybe the thunder and the sky, and the spirits of the night. Then we have civilized pagans in our day today who fear things like the future or hostile neighbors or disease or a technological breakdown and anything else you can think of. And above all, everyone fears death. What an irony to fear these things, all of which will pass away eventually, and not to fear God, to whom all of us must one day give an accounting. God spoke through Isaiah and said this in Isaiah 51, verse 12. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, or the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor? No wonder the psalmist says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. Next week, we're going to get to Paul's conclusion. But I want to tease you with a little bit of it today. Verse 19, not in today's text, but we're going to talk about it anyway, says that so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the imagery here is judicial. We're in a courtroom and here we have the defendant closing his mouth, nothing to say in his own defense. After the prosecuting attorney, which is these verses we've just read, has finished. That defendant recognizes that he or she is at the mercy of the judge, who is God. This God is about to pronounce sentence and the person has no defense. Their mouth is stopped. So I guess I would ask you, what is your defense? If God insists on that day that you present a defense, what are you going to say? Will your defense be your good deeds, like the rich young ruler tried to do with Jesus? Will it be your family name? Well, my dad was a deacon, or my mom taught Sunday school in the kids' area for 20 years. Will it be your church name? I was a member of Fairway Baptist Church. Is it your nationality? I'm an American. You see, there's only one defense. When we stand before God, we would say, Judge, I'm guilty, but my penalty has been paid by your son. His innocence and righteousness have been credited, credited to me, and my guilt was borne by him. I stand before you now in his name as your adopted son and co-heir with him. That's the only claim you can make. So I guess I'm asking, can you say that this morning? Are you prepared to stand before your creator in that way? You see, we re rely entirely upon the grace of and the mercy of our God.
How could our salvation be due to anything else but God's mercy and grace if we are really as ruined as Paul says? Ruined? Oh, I'm absolutely ruined. Just read it. But even so, we may be saved from this ruin by the glorious work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm inviting you to make a decision today to claim that work that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, to give your life to him. The Bible says if you believe and if you confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. It's not very complicated, but it's a lifelong journey that you can start today.